opened up to Mark 16. After the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene, Salome, and Mary the mother of James bought some spices to put on Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just as the sun was coming up, they went to the tomb. On their way, they were asking one another, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance for us? But when they looked, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, and it was a huge stone. The women went into the tomb, and on the right side they saw a young man in a white robe sitting there. They were very alarmed. They were alarmed. I threw very in there. The man said, Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus from Nazareth, who was nailed to a cross. God has raised him to life, and he isn't here. You can see the place where they put his body. Now go and tell his disciples, and especially Peter, that he will go ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. When the women ran from the tomb, they were confused and shaking all over. They were too afraid to tell anyone what had happened. Let's go to Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. I told you the most important part of the message, exactly as it was told to me. That part is, Christ died for our sins, as the scriptures say. He was buried, and three days later he was raised to life, as the scriptures say. Christ appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After this, he appeared to more than 500 other followers. Most of them are still alive, but some have died. He also appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles. Finally, he appeared to me, even though I am like someone who was born at the wrong time. This is the word of the Lord. I listened to a podcast recently where several Christian authors were discussing an article that they'd all read. Evidently, it was posted by a mainstream Christian magazine. And uh, the article uh, called for uh, the deportation of of all Muslims. And uh, one of the authors uh, said that she went online to kind of check scroll down and see what people were commenting about that and was surprised how many people thought that would be a good idea. And so she wrote a little post, she said, on her Facebook post, questioning whether that was the right approach. And then immediately, uh, someone who knew her on Facebook uh, wrote her that if she was a friend of uh, Islam, she couldn't be a friend of his and unfriended her. That is an uncommon example, I think, I hope, um, of a common problem that we have in the church. We find it, I find it, perhaps you find it, difficult to stay in relationship with people with whom we disagree about very important things. And instead, we have this tendency to cut off relationship and find like-minded people and create our own spiritual tribe. And the authors on the podcast got into an interesting discussion of what they called tribalism, which was not an idea that, uh, that I'm really very familiar with. Uh, the Macmillan Dictionary defines tribalism as a very strong loyalty that Someone feels for the group they belong to, usually combined with the feeling of disliking all other groups or being different from them. And if you look at the history of the church, uh, tribalism is alive and well in the church. 
A lot of Christian tribalism has to do with how we interpret Scripture. We're people of the book. We try to live under the authority of the book. We believe God's revealed himself in the book. And so disagreements about what the book says and how we should live uh, are important to us. We care a lot about it. And, and typically we form tribes uh, among people who read the book the same way that we do. Now, when we get towards the end of the series, and it, it is coming, I promise, we will end the series at some point. Uh, one of the sermons I'm going to give is to talk about when it is appropriate to break away. Because as we've said, there, are, there is a line. There, there are certain beliefs that, that we do need to hold in common. But by and large, I think most of us would agree that the church has exhibited tribalism far too often over the centuries. Which is tragic on two levels. First, tribalism disfigures the bride of Christ. It just uh, mars her beautiful face. And secondly, we lose a tremendous opportunity for spiritual growth. Because if uh, I'm only around people that think the way that I think, uh, although that's easier for me and I actually enjoy it more, I, I lose the opportunity to learn from you when you say I see it differently. So two, two things that we lose. And so really one of the things that we're looking at this winter is how can a church stay faithful to Scripture without succumbing to tribalism? And uh, here's how we've been answering the question. Uh, All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-creedal issues. And sometimes we call that consensual orthodoxy. Now, this winter, we've been working our way line by line through the Nicene Creed so that we understand what we're affirming when we say it. Uh, the Creed summarizes the Gospel. As you've seen, most of the lines in the Creed are quotes from the Bible. Last week, we considered the death of Christ. And this week, we consider the phrase, uh, and on the third day, he rose again according to the Scriptures. Today we talk about the resurrection. I know it's Lent. Uh, I know Easter's a few weeks away. I thought about putting this off, and I just thought, eh, <laughs> we're just going to keep going through the Creed. So kind of keep your Lenten uh, depressive uh, face on while we talk about the resurrection, if, if you can. So the, the longing for the resurrection is... Everywhere in our culture, uh, I hadn't seen this. I was reading an article about it, but I didn't realize that Superman even was resurrected in 1992. That's when it happened. In uh, three different uh, comic books, he uh, dies, is buried, and rises from the dead. In The Matrix, Neo is shot dead by Agent Smith. Miraculously, Neo rises from the dead, confirming his messianic status. In the Matrix Reloaded, Neo resurrects Trinity from the dead. After she is fatally wounded, Harry Potter dies and is resurrected in order to defeat the evil Voldemort. And all those ridiculous vampire movies have something to do with uh, resurrection. Now we also find stories about dying and rising gods in Greece, Egypt, and the ancient Near East. And, you know, a lot of scholars look at this and say, you know, really what Christianity did was... was it borrowed the story of the resurrection from other resurrection stories. Now, that's one way to read the evidence. 
but, but, but think about it. You can read it another way. If the truest story in the world is the story about the Son of God dying and rising again to save us, wouldn't you expect to find echoes of that stories in all the great stories? C.S. Lewis writes about this. He says, We must not be nervous about parallels in pagan Christs, he says. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. So the gospel does not end on Good Friday. Good Friday is only Good Friday when it's understood in light of what happened on Easter Sunday. I read a book this week called The Cross is Not Enough. And when I ordered it, I thought, that's a horrible name for a book. How can you say the, the cross is not enough? And, and what he meant was that the cross, apart from the resurrection, is not the full gospel. Really, if all you focus on is the cross, you've got a martyrdom. Uh, you have a tragedy. You don't have much hope. The cross plus the resurrection is the good news of the gospel. Hans Kung put it like this. He said, Christianity begins with Easter. Without Easter, there would be no gospel, not a single narrative, not a letter in the New Testament. Without Easter, Christendom would have no belief in Christ, no proclamation of Christ, nor any church, any divine worship, any mission. Now, in the part of the creed that we're looking at tonight, the fathers are quoting from uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. Paul says he was buried, and three days later he was raised to life. And this is a, an ancient creed. Remember, Paul is writing around 55, 60, 65 to the Corinthians. Uh, you can tell by the grammatical structure of what he's what he's written in the letter, that he's, he's reciting a creed that is already being passed down in the church. So he, this is one of the earliest documents we have that probably goes back to three or four years after the resurrection of Jesus, where the early Christians were saying, this is what we believe. Jesus died and rose again. It's the climax of every gospel. Every sermon in the book of Acts proclaims the resurrected Christ. We find an early church praying to a risen Lord who is very much alive and well and reigning in heaven. Uh, the epistles are all written from people to people who believe that Christ is risen from the dead. The book of Revelation celebrates a risen Christ. Well, why were the early Christians so confident that Christ had risen from the dead? Well, the reason why they were so confident was because a number of them had seen the crucified Jesus alive. And Paul says this, as Tim read for us earlier, Christ appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After this, he appeared to more than 500 other followers. Most of them are still alive. Some have died. He then appeared to James and then all of the apostles. And finally, he appeared to me. Now, you know how history works. There wasn't YouTube. You, you can't see a clip of this. So how do you prove something that did or didn't happen 2,000 years ago? You have to look at the evidence, and then you have to piece together what, are, what is the best way to explain the documents that we have. And, of course, you're aware that, that there are alternative ways to understand the early church's rock-hard grip on the resurrection. Uh, some have said that Jesus swooned woke up and then escaped. Some have said that the disciples stole the body. Some have said that 
the disciples had grief-induced hallucinations. But really, when, when you look at the evidence, these theories don't really explain it very well. I mean, knowing what we know about the brutality of crucifixion, it's not likely that Jesus somehow woke up Sunday morning, pushed away a three-ton boulder, and got out of town. Just not likely. It's not really likely that 500 people would all have the same hallucination. And think about that for a moment. Remember, the disciples really didn't get the crucifixion and the resurrection. So, if they were going to hallucinate anything, they would have hallucinated about Jesus coming back, destroying the Romans, and setting up a a, a Jewish state. They wouldn't have hallucinated about the resurrection. They didn't understand it. And is it really probable that the disciples could outfox the entire Roman Empire and steal Jesus' body? And even if they did steal the body, why would they then turn around and start preaching a lie about the resurrection? And then why would they be willing to die as martyrs for that lie? And how can you explain the disciples' transformation from terrified, disillusioned, and scattered followers of a martyred rabbi into militant preachers of the resurrection. The most reasonable conclusion from the historical documents we have is that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. John Updike wrote in a poem, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. Well, what does the resurrection mean for Christians? Well, first of all, the resurrection offers us a new way to live. And Paul talks about this particularly in the sixth chapter of his letter to the Romans. And I will post that up there for you. What should we say? Should we keep on sinning so that God's wonderful kindness will show up even better? No, we should not. If we are dead to sin, how can we go on sinning? Don't you know that all who share in Christ Jesus by being baptized also share in His death? When we were baptized, we died and were buried with Christ. We were baptized so that we would live a new life as Christ was raised to life by the glory of God the Father. If we shared in Jesus' death by being baptized, we will be raised to life with Him. Paul's addressing a question that somebody evidently was asking in the congregation in light of his teaching on grace. Well, why don't we just keep on sinning so that we can uh, enjoy grace all the more? And Paul says it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because you're different now. Because 
You're not who you used to be. Because you have been baptized or united with, fused with, grafted into Jesus Christ's very life, and He died, you died with Him. When He rose, you rose with Him. You now share in the resurrection life, His life, Paul states through your life, your life is His life. They're intertwined, woven together, connected, grafted in. And so now you cannot live the way you used to be living. Because you are abiding in the resurrection life. John Wilson, the editor of a magazine called Books and Culture, um, reads for a living. He essentially reads Christian books and then writes reviews. And that's kind of what that magazine is about. And he recently remarked that a hundred years ago, the most commonly preached on verse in the Bible was Galatians 2.20. And uh, that's a wonderful verse that celebrates resurrection life. I've died, but Christ now lives in me. I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave His life for me. And, and, and when I was in seminary, we read a lot of books from that period, these wonderful books about what was called the exchanged life, the idea that I've exchanged my sin for Christ's righteousness and my dead life for His resurrected life. We live the exchanged life. And then Wilson observed that the text that he hears preached on the most today, especially among younger Christians, is Micah 6.8. The Lord God has told us what is right and what He demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. Now, perhaps this is a healthy correction. Uh, Perhaps the church a hundred years ago was too introspective, too focused on one's own experience of God with little concern for justice in the world. I think that would be a fair criticism of the church at that time, or at least a part of it that I'm a heritor to. But I wonder if the church of a hundred years from now will come back and find us so focused on justice that we forgot about the resurrection life. I wonder if we will be accused of doing the works of Jesus without the power of Jesus. Paul wrote, anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. The past is forgotten. Everything is New. Do you believe that? Christianity, as we've often said, is more than asking what would Jesus do. You don't have the power to do that. Christianity is sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ and allowing His life to lead through us. That word for united that Paul uses, it can mean grafted or grafted into Christ. Uh, Watchman Nee, the Chinese Christian leader, wrote a, a book on, on this. It was it's called The Normal Christian Life. It's uh, not the easiest book in the world to read, but I find myself going back to it uh, over and over again. And he tells a story to illustrate how we share in Christ's resurrection. He says, one day I was visiting a farmer who had a flourishing orchard of uh, 300 fruit trees. And and Nee asks him, why are your fruit trees bearing such such lush fruit? 
And the, the farmer pointed to a large tree in the middle of the orchard that he called the father tree. And, and he said that he had grafted branches from the father tree onto all the other seedlings in the orchard. And that was why they all flourished. The farmer said, I simply take a little of the nature of the one tree and transfer it to the other. And he concludes with a question. If a man can graft a branch of one tree onto another, cannot God take the life of his son and graft it into us? See, that's the gift of the resurrection. Not only that you've been saved from the penalty of sin, but that you have been spared from the power of sin and now grafted into the very life of Jesus Christ. And you live by his resurrection power. And one way to appropriate that power is through prayer. A friend sent me a resurrection prayer recently. I thought I'd read part of it. Jesus I sincerely receive you as my life, my holiness, my strength. And I receive all the work and triumph of your resurrection, through which you've conquered sin, death, and judgment. Death has no mastery over you, nor does any foul thing. And I have been raised with you to a new life, to live your life dead to sin and alive to God. I now take my place in your resurrection and in your life through which I'm saved by your life. I reign in life through your life. I receive your life, your humility, love and forgiveness, your integrity in all things, your wisdom, your discernment, your strength, your joy and your union with the Father. Apply to me the fullness of your resurrection. I receive it with thanks and give it total claim to my spirit, soul, and body, my heart, mind, and will. So what does the resurrection mean for the Christian? Well, the first gift of the resurrection is a new way to live. The second gift of the resurrection is a new way to die. We may fear death more than we think we do. Uh, The psychoanalyst Ernest Becker won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death. He thinks that our anxiety about death lurks as a motivating factor beneath nearly everything we do. We disguise our struggle, he says, by piling up figures in a bank account to reflect privately our sense of heroic worth or by having only a little better home in the neighborhood, a bigger car, and brighter children. But underneath throbs the ache, no matter how we mask it. Becker's observation is that we all fear death, but we repress it, so it leaks out in other ways. A young wife has irrational fears that she will never conceive a child. A middle-aged man becomes obsessed with working out, rising early in the morning to swim endless laps in a pool. 
A young executive reaches her career goals early in life and then she realizes that chasing those goals has protected her from confronting her own mortality. An article reviewing the psychological literature on death anxiety found some interesting patterns. Most people report that they have a low to moderate level of death anxiety. Women tend to report higher levels of death anxiety. There's no consistent increase in death anxiety as people age. Older people actually seem to have less death anxiety. People with mental and emotional disorders have a higher level of death anxiety than the general population. Death anxiety can spike temporarily for people who have been exposed to trauma. Now, I, I, I have a sick sense of humor, but while I was reading this rather sober article on the Internet, a pop-up ad appeared that said, one tip to flatten your tummy. <laughs> right in the middle of this article on death anxiety. And I thought, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what the, if I can flatten my tummy, I can uh, push off the reaper just a little bit more. The resurrection is the Christian story's answer to the human fear of death. And the argument is very simple. And Paul lays it out uh, to that passage, in, to the Corinthians, in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage. He says, uh, if we could have that, Bruce. If we preach that Christ was raised from death, how can some of you say that the dead will not be raised to life? If they won't be raised to life, Christ himself wasn't raised to life. And if Christ wasn't raised to life, our message is worthless, and so is your faith. You see, by the way, why this is the core? (laughs) We're getting down to the core. This is something a Christian has to buy into. And if Christ wasn't raised to life, our message is worthless, and so is your faith. If the dead won't be raised to life, we've told lies about God by saying that he raised Christ to life when he really did not. So if the dead won't be raised to life, Christ wasn't raised to life. Unless Christ was raised to life, your faith is useless and you are still living in your sins. And those people who died after putting their faith in Him are completely lost. If our hope in Christ is good only for this life, we're worse off than anyone else. But Christ has been raised to life. And He makes us certain that others will also be raised to life. Now, maybe you're saying, I want to believe, I try to believe, uh, sometimes I believe, sometimes I don't believe. Just pray the Lord help your unbelief. There's no crime in that. That's why they call it faith. It's not wrong to struggle about believing these truths. But these are the truths that our faith is based on. And this is where our joy and our hope comes from. This is our story that, that life actually does come out of, out of death. Now, uh, in, in Kate's beautiful prayer, she talked about the rhythms of nature and, and how they, they echo the rhythms of redemption. Uh, today, in, in, in our little neighborhood, I opened the window of my office as I was uh, studying. And, and uh, it was just like... The whole world had woken up. I don't know if you found that wherever you were today. These little children ran out, and they just seemed much louder than last year. And, and I rejoiced in that. And one of them ran to this muddy garden and said, The garden smells so good, and just dug her hands into it. 
And they just seemed to be yelling everything. It would be like Jesse and I going into work tomorrow. How did it go last night, Jesse? And they can't help but just spring. And the birds were just loud. And, and you know, if birds can high-five, you know, they were high-fiving. Like, finally, we're, we're out of this thing. Even my, my dogs were waking up. It's a beautiful time of year. Now, one way you could look at it is say, see, what the Christians did is they saw nature and they made up this idea of the resurrection because they saw it in nature. You could say that. Or the other thing you could say is, the resurrection is such a deep truth that it is hardwired into the DNA of reality and all of the universe celebrates it. You know, one of the things that I thought of preparing for this and preparing last week, I found my own emotional state connected to what I was studying. So last week I felt much more sober and reflective and penitential and focused on my sin. This week I felt much more focused on joy and hope and the triumph of the empty tomb. And it struck me that all congregations have emotional lives. And that some congregations, maybe sometimes we're in this place, some congregations are Friday congregations. They're congregations of the cross. And for them, it's, it's all about sin and guilt and being forgiven and going deeper to find more sin so I can be more forgiven. Some congregations are Easter congregations. For them, it's all about victory and triumph and overcoming and healing. And But life has got both, right? So it seems like we need to be a Friday and a Sunday congregation. It seems like we need to have a culture of both the cross and the resurrection. Both. And somehow hold them in two. I think part of that, and I don't know exactly what this looks like, but part of that is, is, is helping one another uh, live by the power of the resurrection and helping one another die in the hope of the resurrection. That's, that's one of the reasons I, I long for an intergenerational church. And that just, just strikes me as not easy to do. You know, maybe we even do tribalism around what part of the season of life we're in. Because maybe uh, young folks don't want to be around us when we tell our cancer stories and our heart attack stories and our going to see mom in Tallahassee story. But what kind of joy and confidence and trust and beauty could be poured out upon us if somehow we could weave this rhythm of life and death into a dance that we all share in together and all support each other at the same time. Let's pray.